Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's exciting webinar. My name is John Allen of Setco, and I'm your host for today's webinar, which is part of an ongoing series of emerging topics in geosynthetics. Today's webinar is sponsored by the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute, which is an industry-based organization at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign that promotes the use of fabricated geomembranes and other geosynthetics for a variety of applications through its research, education, and technology transfer activities. Factory fabricated geomembranes and geosynthetics reduce field seeming installation time and costs and allow more, more modular construction and provide consistent system quality. Today's webinar is also sponsored by the North American chapter of the International Geosynthetic Society or IGS North America. I'm currently the president-elect of IGS North America and pleased that IGS North America is also supporting this webinar, uh, free webinar series. IGS North America's mission is to educate the civil engineering industry about geosynthetics via webinars, educate the educator courses, student and professional memberships, and conducting geosynthetics related to conferences and workshops. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the questions box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and we will address them at the end of today's presentation. The re recording of this webinar and a PDF of the slides will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentations. Certificates of attendance will be sent automatically to all who at attend the entire webinar. Our speaker today is Jason Ross of SNME uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Jason earned his uh, bachelor's uh, and his master's wrapping up his research work in civil engineering from the Ohio State University in 2009, where he studied interface shear strength of geosynthetics, including geomembranes and geosynthetic clay liners. Since graduating, he has completed both design and construction quality uh, control projects for coal combustion residual landfills and impoundments. We are so appreciative that uh, Jason has squeezed us into his busy schedule to give our June 2019 webinar titled Geosynthetics for Coal Combustion Residuals Applications. Everyone, please welcome Jason Ross and SNME out of Columbus, Ohio. Thank you, John, and uh, thank you to the Fabricated Geomembrane Institute for inviting me to speak today on some of my experiences with geosynthetics and coal combustion residual applications. An outline of my presentation today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the CCR rule language and how it impacts uh, some of the geosynthetic systems we can use in our design and construction projects. We go into bottom liner systems, um, discuss some different design scenarios. Go through a GCL hydraulic connectivity testing study that I was a part of, and include some additional design considerations on the bottom liner systems. Next, I'll move into cover systems, uh, discuss some design scenarios there, and some other design considerations I wanted to mention, and then talk about constructability topics. Uh, some important things in the geosynthetics in these facilities, including geocomposite drainage outlets, tie-ins of structures and pipe penetrations, geomembrane deployment and electrical leak detection. And to the end, we'll have time for questions. So please feel free to submit your questions throughout to John and he will compile those and we will be sure to get to them. I'm sure everyone on this call is pretty well aware of the CCR rules that were published in April, 2015. 
these rules are started to require additional documentation, um, and sometimes additional analysis, and have resulted in improvements and some design changes to these facilities. One of the biggest changes with the rules was that they were an additional set on top of the state guidelines that most facilities already operated under. So now designers uh, need to be considering both the state and federal uh, permitting regulations. The result of these rules has been closure of many inactive or not needed facilities. It's forced review of existing facilities. It's required regular inspections to be documented and annual reviews by professional engineers. And it's changed the future construction and new design of these facilities. Specifically in the rules I'm gonna to touch on today, sections 257.70 and 7.2, discussing design criteria for bottom liner systems for landfills and surface impoundments, and 257.102, which discussed design criteria for closure of landfills and surface impoundments. Bottom liner system. .70 discusses landfills, .72 discusses surface impoundments. These facilities are required to be designed now with a composite liner system. This liner consists of a geomembrane with a compacted clay liner, or an alternative bottom liner system consists of a geomembrane and a, um, a liner that's determined to be equivalent to a compacted clay liner, or in this case, a geosynthetic clay liner. My figure here shows a typical um, bottom liner system on many facilities prior to the CCR rules, where you may have had a compacted clay liner, typically maybe three feet thick, um, beneath your leachate collection system. Um, in, in some cases, there was no uh, geomembrane in part of the design. Now, the middle um, figure here discusses a composite liner. So the, the CCR rules requires your compacted clay liner to be uh, two feet thick, underlying a geomembrane beneath your leachate collection system, if you're in a landfill case. Alternative composite liner would be a thinner profile, a geosynthetic clay liner beneath a geomembrane, beneath your leachate collection system. What is a compacted clay liner? Compacted clay liner is 24 inches thick per the CCR rules with a maximum permeability of one times 10 to the minus seven centimeters per second. How do we determine if our soils and our clay liner meet that permeability? Well, there's many methods and different things that are used, including lab testing, test pads, or in situ Shelby tube sampling. The photo here shows a test pad being prepared. A test pad is a small scale demonstration using your existing or your proposed, your proposed liner soils and using the same means and methods that you're going to construct your clay liner with. This includes using a, uh, the same lift thicknesses um, with a loose lift thickness, uh, the same number of passes, the same type of equipment, they're gonna, uh, same type number of passes your compactor and the same type of equipment you're gonna be using for your compacted clay liner. When the test pad's completed, uh, you can uh, test it with Boutwell field permeability tests. In some cases, people may push Shelby tubes in this completed test pad and do laboratory testing of the compacted clay liner. In other scenarios, test pads are not used and the actual compacted clay liner is constructed in the field and Shelby tubes are pushed through that clay liner uh, for laboratory testing to confirm the permeability values are met. The geomembrane uh, specified in the um, CCR rules has a 30 mil minimum thickness. Uh, in some cases, for some types of plastics, a thicker geomembrane is required. The photo here uh, shows a fabricated geomembrane being deployed. Um, this was a leachate trunk line project I worked on. Um, the geomembrane is being deployed over 
in place compacted clay liner. The G membrane in this case is being pulled out as one large panel um, by several laborers. And I'll get into some more fabricated G membrane uh, deployment methods later on in the presentation. So the alternative composite liner. So maybe you don't have uh, compacted clay available at your site. So you have a, a geomembrane and a lower component. And this was added in response to comments to some of the initial draft rules. The clay availability in different areas of the country just do not uh, allow for a compacted clay liner to be constructed cost efficiently. Well, the CCR rules allow for this alternative liner to be installed, but it must be demonstrated by an engineer using Darcy's law that you have equivalency. Darcy's law has three parameters, um, hydraulic conductivity of your alternative liner, the hydraulic head above the liner, H, and T, your thickness of your alternative to your clay liner. So in most cases, H is the maximum allowed is 30 centimeters by the CCR rules. So in most cases, the designer is gonna maintain that thickness, not wanting to limit themselves in the future to some smaller value in your leaching collection system. Uh, the value T, uh, thickness of geosynthetic clay liner, um, is not is pretty uh, standard across the industry and most manufacturers have the same thickness value. So this parameter really also does not change. So the one parameter in this, in this equation here that does vary some is the hydraulic conductivity of your proposed alternative liner. What is the hydraulic conductivity of a GCL? What's well, the perm? Uh, the perm is they, the manufacturers reported as a minimum average roll value. And the minimum average roll value is developed based on um, laboratory testing by the manufacturer and a statistical analysis of this, of the average values of this, of the values reported in this testing. So the minimum average roll value is the average minus two standard deviations of the data that's collected. So you have a 97.7% degree of confidence that the value uh, specified as the minimum average roll value will be achieved on the liner delivered to your site. It's typically reported for GCLs, standard GCLs, as five tenths to the minus nine centimeters per second. If you go into Darcy's law and using a thickness of about a quarter inch for your GCL, you require, you're required to have about three tenths to the minus nine centimeters per second for equivalency to a 24 inch compacted clay liner. And this is the only demonstration that the CCR rule allows um, for equivalency. So what's our solution? Uh, GCL manufacturers have developed new polymer modified GCLs that produce reduced hydraulic conductivity values. Discussing other bottom liner requirements before we get back to the hydraulic conductivity of our alternative liner. Interface shear resistance must be demonstrated on all interfaces. You must be placed it on a foundation that's capable of providing support to your geosynthetic liner system. Um, cover, you must cover all surrounding ground that's in contact with the waste. And you need appropriate chemical properties and strength to resist the effects of the landfill leachate. So the chemical properties part of that is uh, for this alternative liner system is one I'm gonna to touch on uh, in, in the next few slides on a case study of a GCL. So uh, GCL chemical compatibility testing with CCR landfill leachate. So I authored a paper at the Rota Coal Ash in May, 2017 with my co-author, Mike Rowland. Paper's available at flash.info. And it was a chemical compatibility testing um, that we did for a geosynthetic clay liner uh, to demonstrate we met the chemical properties at our specific CCR landfill. Little background on the topic. Uh, we, had, we were working on the design of a CCR landfill. It was designed and permeated over a decade prior to being constructed. 
you know, the long range planning that takes these landfills, many times things can change uh, before we go to construction. The permitted design was a geosynthetic bottom liner system, a GCL using standard bentonite, a geomembrane and a geotextile. The coal combustion residuals placed into this landfill consisted of FGD and fly ash. And it's important to note that Trona was used periodically in the pollution control process. So as we were preparing to, to uh, go to construction in this landfill, um, a lot of things had changed in the 15 years since we had, it had been permitted. And uh, we, this, the uh, chemical compatibility of GCL's CCR landfill leachate had become an important topic uh, in, the, in the industry. Doctors Benson and Dr. Edel and Dr. Shackelford, among others, have looked at this topic uh, very extensively. And to describe it briefly in this presentation, um, GCLs, as many of you know, um, are so have a low hydraulic conductivity value because as the, the bentonite in the GCL absorbs water and expands, creates a very tortuous path um, for the fluid to move through the GCL. Well, the high ionic strength of some of these CCR landfill leachates has been documented by Dr. Benson and others, um, reduces the swelling capabilities of your bentonite as a result of the cation and anion exchange that's occurring. Um, FGD and Trona ash have been uh, shown to have some of the highest ionic strengths of these leachates. So we knew we had to look at our chemical compatibility in this case, because this type of uh, leachate could result in a higher hydraulic conductivity for a geosynthetic clay liner, for a standard GCO. The so response from the manufacturers was to add polymer blends to the bentonite. Now there's many different GCO manufacturers and they all do it a little bit differently, but to generally describe it, the polymer coats the bentonite and helps it resist this cation anion exchange. And again, I would encourage you to reach out to the GCL manufacturers to find out more on their specific um, application, as this does not fully describe how everyone um, handles it. Um, development of these products is still continuing. Um, there are interface shear strength considerations um, that if you, if you run site-specific tests with a standard bentonite GCL, you also want to check it again uh, with a polymer-modified uh, GCL. And you really need to do project-specific testing uh, for both interface shear strength and this permeability test. So how we were able to check our chemical compatibility in this case was through ASTM 6766, which is a standard test, me test method for evaluation of hydraulic properties of geosynthetic clay liners permeated with potential, potentially incompatible aqueous solutions. There's two scenarios in this, in this uh, ASTM method uh, for saturation, whether you're gonna saturate with leachate or saturated with distilled water, you have to decide between. And there's three methods, A, B, and C, discussing different falling head or constant head permeability testing methods. So in our case, we were able to get a very representative sample of our leachate. We had an existing landfill on, on site that had the same bottom liner system and the same type of waste. So and then all of the leachate above this liner system came out at a discrete point we were able to sample from. We tested uh, this sample for calcium, magnesium, sodium, potassium, sulfate, pH, and others. Um, those parameters were determined not only from reading through the literature on what's important to know and test for, but also in discussing with the GCL manufacturers what type of information they wanted to be able to mix a polymer blend that was chemically compatible to our leachate. So we, we sent this uh, uh, leachate data to the manufacturers and they selected products based on their, on their own recommendations. And we let them each select two different products. Um, 
One being a product they were pretty confident would work with our leachate, and one being one that maybe had a little bit different polymer, a little bit less polymer, um, that would be you know, closer to working or not working. Um, but that secondary product would give the owner a lot more cost-effective option um, if it were the one to be, if it were to work and be chemically compatible. The index we also did index testing of these GCL products that were delivered to make sure they conformed with our other project requirements. We completed the permeability testing using low confining pressures, less than five PSI, giving us our highest permeability condition. There were four GCL products, three of them being polymer modified. Our termination criteria in this case were passing results for up to six months. And in our case, this was a, a we had some permitting recommendation for this value. And it seemed like a reasonable value given our duration until um, construction. And, uh, but there's many, many, a lot of literature out there on this, on the time duration for this type of test. Definitely, um, there's not a defined value that everyone should be using that I know of today. The influent and effluent of this um, leachate was tested for pH and electrical conductivity, both, um, both at the influent and effluent stages. And looking at those values and seeing when they stopped changing between influent and effluent provided an indication that the chemical reaction was stopping or was slowing. 6766, the STM method, um, discusses um, some consistency between your hydraulic connectivity values and at least having two pore volumes of fluid. Other than that, it doesn't define exactly when the test should be terminated. Here's a graph showing my results, up to 20 days of testing, of permeability testing. My first GCL, um, GCL number one, it started to uh, greatly increase in permeability after about four days of testing. GCL and GCL number one was not polymer modified. GCL number two was a polymer modified GCL and began to fail after approximately 12 days of testing. This blue line here is our targeted three times 10 to the minus nine centimeters per second permeability value. And our other two GCLs, GCLs three and four, continued after 20 days of testing, providing acceptable uh, values. The full results for six months of testing, GCL3, after approximately 100 days, exceeded our target value and, was, and began to fail. And GCL4, uh, fortunately, stayed below our target value, provided acceptable results for the full six months of testing. So we're able to achieve and document we had chemical compatibility for GCL number four at our specific site. I would recommend this chemical compatibility testing, uh, regardless of the type of CCR materials you have. There's, it's still, this, this work is still in its infancy and things are changing. Even if you have fly ash only at your site, or if you have FGD especially, or trona or gypsum, I think it's important um, to be able to demonstrate the type of chemical compatibility you have. A sudden increase in hydraulic activity of, of a polymer modified GCL was observed after three months of passing test results. Uh, displaying the importance of having at least six months of testing. Periodic re-verification of compatibility may be warranted. In our case, we had a plant that used Trona for pollution control. When they decided to use Trona, it was probably um, not considered what would happen to the landfill leachate with the addition of that um, product to meet another pollution control. Um, so these changes at the plant may not be communicated over time and your leachate could be changing. So over the life of a landfill, this re-verification is probably warranted um, several times. 
your permit documents, if you're writing um, specifications and QAQC plans, make sure you allow for future consideration of new products and procedures. Uh, you want to plan in place because um, pro these products are still changing. Um, as we speak, uh, manufacturers are developing new technologies and, and finding ways to deal these, with these problems. So make sure you're, you allow yourself uh, some future consideration of how you can introduce new products that come about. And this testing requires early planning to ensure you have multiple GCLs, hopefully pre-qualified when obtaining construction bids. And a need I, I see in the industry is we do a lot of conformance testing on geosynthetic products. Um, between geomembranes and geotextiles and GCLs at our sites. But there's not a standard testing for conformance testing for polymer products. And this is for a few reasons. Um, obviously, the polymers are, that the manufacturers are using are uh, proprietary. So sharing this data is difficult. Um, the manufacturers are using different methods. Um, so one test might not work for all the polymer products out there. But I think it's important that as an industry, we can figure out at least by manufacturer some conformance tests that we can do to verify that these polymer modified GCLs at our sites are able um, to be verified, um, that they're meeting the, the values and the types of polymers that were specified. Moving into a few other design considerations for your bottom liner system and talking about interface shear strength. As John mentioned, I spent a great deal of uh, my graduate school program uh, running interface shear strengths like the one you see in this picture here, interface shear tests. What you, what you see here is a GCL on the bottom and a geomembrane on the top. And what these were was they were, they were laying against each other in the interface shear machine and then I opened them up and took this photo. A few things to point out here. In this case, we had some slight internal failure of the, the back half of the GCL. And inside the GCL is hydrated bentonite. And hydrated bentonite is very weak internal shear strength between four and six degrees. So in your design, you do not want your uh, minimum interface shear strength to be internal to your GCL. Fortunately for us, uh, the manufacturers have increased the internal shear strength of these GCLs tremendously in the past 20 years um, to where, you know, I've, you know, your interface or internal fares of GCL um, I don't really see them too often until you get up near you know, 20,000 PSF normal load. Um, but in this case, a few things I wanted to point out was this, uh, the bentonite here, you can see it you know, smeared a little bit on our interface with the, the G-membrane. And that's important, to, and that just speaks to the importance of your project-specific testing. Um, it's one thing to have this bentonite smearing out, but as these polymer-modified products uh, were first developed, and this problem has been has been uh, dealt with the past few years by manufacturers, but the polymer um, also needs to be encapsulated and not allowed to squeeze out, weakening this interface. Um, so you really, you know, you you need to run the project specific testing with your exact um, GCL you're going to use in your project to make sure that that you can load it and um, properly to prevent uh, the squeeze out and that that the top geotextile um, keeps that polymer and the bentonite encapsulated. Um, for your loading conditions. Also important to note, if you're specifying um, interface shear strength uh, testing for geosynthetics, ASTM 5321 is for sole geosynthetic and geosynthetic geosynthetic interfaces. For this test, you can use you know, faster shearing rates as opposed to um, GCL interface shear strengths and quicker loading times. 
If you're doing GCL, geosynthetic clay liner, internal interface shear strength, you have to use ASTM 6243, which will have slower shear rates and slower loading requirements. One thing I definitely want to mention here, if you're a uh, designer or if you're in construction and you're specifying interface shear strength testing, please make sure you talk to your lab about the types of rates and the types of loading that should be specified. If you call labs and you ask them to run it per ASTM 5321, and especially if you tell them that you're getting three prices for this test, they're all gonna give you the fastest rate allowed, which may produce positive pore pressures on the interface and not give you representative values. So please make sure that you do some homework on the appropriate rates, the appropriate loading for these tests. If you're going up uh, to very high loads, it could take a week um, to load this interface appropriately and make sure that you don't cause um, pore pressures to uh, be there on your, during the test or uh, to squeeze out uh, some of the bentonite and give you a bad test result. Next, I wanted to move in and discuss uh, cover systems. Cover systems are covered under Section 102 of the Federal CCR Rules. And I'm going to summarize the requirements in the rule. Um, your permeability of your cover system must be less than or equal to your bottom liner system to prevent you know, the old bathtub effect that you're allowing more water into your landfill than you're letting out. And your maximum permeability is 1 times 10 to the minus 5 centimeters per second. Centimeters per second. You must have an 18-inch earthen layer to minimize infiltration and a six-inch earthen layer that's capable of supporting vegetation and intended to minimize erosion. Your cover system must be such that it can accommodate settling and subsidence. And there is an allowance for an alternative cover system on your landfills or um, surface impoundments, provided that a professional engineer can demonstrate all the requirements are met. Example cover system, so scenario one, Let's say you have a facility with no bottom liner system, or maybe a soil liner with one times 10 to the minus five centimeters per second. Um, yes, some of the old facilities, these scenarios do exist. Um, you could have weight, you know, an infiltration layer is 18 inches thick that meets your um, maximum permeability value beneath the vegetative layer. Scenario two, um, perhaps you have a compact clay liner in your bottom system, bottom liner system. Then you need a compact clay liner in your cover system with a perm less than 1 times 10 to the minus 7 centimeters per second beneath an infiltration layer, beneath a vegetative layer. Now you may be asking, does my do I need an infiltration layer if I can my compacted clay liner count as this, as this layer? And I would say it depends. What part of the country are you in? Do you have appropriate frost uh, protection layer and topsoil thickness to prevent? your recompacted soil barrier, compacted clay liner um, from freezing and thawing and desiccating. Even if you're in the south, um, you don't want this layer to desiccate in the heat. And if you're in the north, you certainly want to protect it from freezing. Um, so that's a consideration. You may not be able to just go uh, two foot recompacted clay liner and six inches of topsoil if you feel like you need some sort of protection depending on where you're at. Scenario three. So if you have a geomembrane in your bottom liner system, then you need a geomembrane in your cover system. Uh, geomembrane typically placed right on top of the waste or your cover sole, beneath your infiltration layer and your vegetative layer. Now, if we have a geomembrane in our cover system, we must make sure we have effective drainage above that geomembrane. So in this case, um, most people, most cases, you're probably gonna use a geocomposite drainage net. There are other products out there for drainage above your geomembrane interface. 
Um, but for this example, I'm just going to mention a geocomposite drainage net beneath your infiltration layer and beneath your vegetative layer. So two feet of cover sole above your geosynthetics. The main takeaways is your bottom liner system is going to determine your cover requirements. You still have interface shear strength considerations on your cover system, and project-specific testing is still needed. One of the questions I think is out there is how low can we assign a normal stress? Well, for one, I'd, I'd reach out to laboratories and ask them what kind of values they can get. The, um, in the past, I think that the, old, the theory was 500 PSF is probably the minimum normal stress that you want to specify. I think more routinely you're seeing 250 PSF specified, and I've seen lower values specified. Um, but ultimately, I think you want an envelope there. If you go down to 100 PSF, you probably want also want tests at 400 and 800 or 500 and 1,000. So you can draw the shear strength envelope and make sure uh, that you're not seeing different um, interface uh, friction at the uh, low, very low normal stresses as opposed to the higher normal stresses. And ultimately, drainage of water from your liner interface is critical. So design considerations. I mentioned veneer stability. So you're going to have to run your veneer stability calculations and determine what kind of um, interface shear strength is needed. Testing your geomembrane to your cover sole and your geomembrane to your geocomposite drainage net or your geomembrane to waste, whichever application you have. Your veneer stability analysis will also include a transmissivity value that you need in order to keep uh, this geosynthetic um, liner system uh, dry. The, the transmissivity value, you have to look at many different cases, both sloped and gently sloping cases. Um, you have to look at the length between your outlets of your, of your uh, drainage layer uh, to make sure uh, that you can, you're specifying the, the correct value that you need. Um, one of the considerations I think I run in, you run into when you start introducing uh, plastics um, into your cover systems is some of these transitions. Uh, many um, landfills and even surface impoundments have a, a bench to a slope system to a bench and to another slope. Well, as you get to the toe of these slopes, making sure that you know how you're handling this water that's in this geocomposite drainage net, whether it's able to just you know, slope downwards and go down the next slope, or whether it slopes along the bench and goes into the page or out of the page with some sort of outlet, or if the drainage is intercepted up here and allowed to drain through maybe a gravel drain outlet um, to the surface. Uh, this is an important you know, design consideration uh, for these types of cases. Construction considerations. I wanted to touch on a few things that I've noticed through my experience um, at some of the, the, the design and construction cases. Uh, with these geosynthetics, these applications. I was fortunate to attend a presentation this year at the Geo Congress in March 2019, uh, presented by Dr. George Kerner. Um, and he authored a paper with Dr. Robert Kerner titled Lessons Learned Regarding Exit Strategies from Geosynthetic Drainage Composites. This paper is available through ASCE. And I'm sure that both Dr. Kerners have written many other publications over the years addressing uh, this topic. One of the things he talked about was the importance of um, the, having appropriate um, drainage design for these geocomposite drainage nets. You can see here, this is a landfill uh, being constructed. Um, we have a geomembrane and you have geocomposite drainage net on top of it. Um, so this is actually a bottom liner system. But 
Um, this geocomposite drainage net is being relied um, to drain uh, the top of that geomembrane and uh, prevent um, the waste on top of it from saturating and ultimately sliding. So if we don't have, so we have to be careful uh, to provide appropriate outlets that are not going to clog over time. One of the things they mentioned was clogging these outlets due to erosion of soil or grass clippings um, getting in there over time. These facilities are intended to last for a very long time after closure. Uh, so uh, it's a, it, I wanted to reference this paper. I encourage you to read it or read up more on the topic um, to just to think about some of these things as you're working through design and construction. Additional considerations, so geocomposite for these geocomposite drainage outlets, um, the overlap along the slopes, not only at the edges of the panel, but also at the butt seams, where you have a panel uh, coming down slope over top of, a, of a, the other panel, making sure you have the appropriate overlap there so that the water from the upper panel can drain into the lower panel, and making sure that you get the geotextile appropriately seamed back on top to prevent intrusion of the soil cover into that geocomposite drainage net. That could clog it eventually and lead to a sliding failure of your cover soils. This is just a few photos, construction photos I had of a geocomposite drainage net uh, being installed. The next topic I wanted to mention is uh, tie-ins to structures and boots and attachments. And one of the references I wanted to include here was a paper I refer to often uh, when when uh, working on design of pipe penetrations or construction at these uh, difficult spots in our facilities. Title Guidance on the Design and Construction of Leak-Resistant Geomembrane Boots and Attachments to Structures. It was written by uh, Rick Teal, Teal Engineering, and Greg DeJarnet with EnviroCon. It's available at rteal.com. It was from the 2009 um, IFAI conference. In this paper, um, they talk about prefabricated versus field fabricated boots. The prefabricated boots are definitely superior to the field fabricated boots. However, um, they are infrequently used. The, uh, this is for a couple of reasons. Um, sometimes changes during construction of either the slope angle where the fabricated boot is supposed to go or, uh, or the pipe size may have changed, um, making the prefabricated boot no longer fit. So a lot of installers would rather do a field fabricated boot which is basically taking um, scrap pieces of the geomembrane on site and forming a boot um, in the field. The paper also discusses different boot gaskets to specify beneath your pipes at these penetrations, has different clamping options discussed and types of clamps to be used. They talk about some of the details of a spark test, which is used uh, at typically at pipe penetrations or areas where you don't have a flat surface and offer an extrusion weld and cannot do a vacuum box test or non-destructive testing of the geomembrane. They discuss different concrete collars um, with embedded geomembranes. They also discuss, um, and they give lots of great photos of some of these good and bad installations of all these topics. And they, they finally, they discuss batten strip details. Um, the batten strip, as many of you are probably aware, is often used at apron, concrete aprons, um, concrete headwalls, uh, where you have a penetration or a pipe coming into your pond, um, a surface impoundment facility. Um, these batten strips uh, will need maintenance over time, recalking, um, trying to prevent uh, leaks from occurring uh, behind the strip. And there's many good, there's many bad ways these can be installed. 
I would recommend avoiding, you know, they cannot be all avoided, but avoiding them when possible. And some of this can be done. Um, for example, if you have a head wall coming into your, into your pond, of actually designing the geosynthetic clit or the geomembrane or the geosynthetic bottom liner system to go up and beneath the uh, concrete head wall and a concrete apron, installing some cover soil above it and then constructing your concrete structure, putting a precast structure in place. That geosynthetic liner can tie into the pipe on the backside of the head wall, which will provide a much better uh, continuous installation of that geosynthetic liner system and prevent um, and provide just a much more of a, a leak tight uh, system. Ultimately, it's an extremely practical reference. I don't recommend if you have not seen it for everyone uh, to take a look at. Um, it's, it talks about some of the tricky details. It takes some experience to get right. These penetrations and boot attachments require the greatest oversight on a construction project. And they're such a small part of the overall installation. In many cases, they only fill in one line of a um, field documentation of welding, but they are probably the greatest risk uh, to these facilities um, from a leaking standpoint. <clears throat> Next, I wanted to touch on some geomembrane deployment and construction considerations there. So many of you may be aware already what a fabricated geomembrane is and what a non-fabricated geomembrane is. The non-fabricated geomembrane are certain types of plastics that arrive to site to your site in rolls. Um, they're welded together on site. Maybe they're 500 feet long, 20 feet wide, and every roll is welded on site for a lot of field um, seaming. The fabricated geomembrane arrive to the site in panels uh, <clears throat> that are, have been factory fabricated from the manufactured rolls. These provide faster deployment and less testing required once on site. So what is a panel and, and what is this factory fabrication? So here's an off-site fabrication facility of a fabricated geomembrane. You can see you really just need a wide open space. Um, you don't need a, a whole lot of anything else. Um, you're well, take your welding equipment in here in this nice, controlled, clean environment, and you do your factory seaming. The factory seams have been shown over the years to have higher strengths and less problems than field seams because you don't have, because in the field you have dust and dirt and other rain and other considerations on what happens to the material in the field. So after seaming this to a certain size on what can be handled and halted the site, um, the panels or the, the, the rolls become a panel and then they are rolled up or uh, folded up, put on a flatbed truck and hauled to your site. Here's a photo of one of these panels being deployed. Um, that is a single panel. Obviously it takes many laborers here, but they're able to Get on top, of, get the geosynthetic liner on top of this prepared subgrade um, very quickly once they get on site, um, saving it from any future rainfall and, and having a lot of rework. This next photo, and I wish I would have gotten a little bit further over here to the left, but this is the low end of a surface impoundment being constructed. And you can see the geosynthetics have been deployed on the right side of the photo, working right to left. And I'm sure, as many of you have been a part of, uh, geosynthetic liner installation in these surface impoundments can be tricky uh, because you begin at the high end, and as you start to cover more and more of the ground, more water begins to run off of your geosynthetics when you get intermittent rainfalls and goes to the low end of your pond, saturating your subgrade, and resulting in this situation, which sometimes can be a week or two, waiting for a span of dry weather that you can get the subgrade reprepped 
and re so you and re and ready for the new installation. So you remove and recompact this wet subgrade. You do additional density testing for your project requirements. You survey it again to make sure you have the right grades, and then it rains again before you can even get your juice and dice going. So in this case, I really feel like a fabricated U membrane can pay off. You can bring these out to the site and, and you know large panels require minimal field seaming and get this once you have your subgrade ready, get it covered quickly um, to prevent it from deteriorating over time. Um, many, many rainfalls. The last constructability topic I wanted to touch on is electrical leak detection. I've been fortunate enough to be involved in both um, design and construction using electrical leak detection on some of our projects. There are exposed U-membrane surveys listed here, and there's covered U-membrane surveys. I'm going to touch on the covered U-membrane surveys, specifically the dipole method using soil covered for soil covered U-membranes, as that's the one I have the most experience with. It's covered under ASTM D7007. What is the dipole method? Well, to perform this test, and I'm not an electrical leak detection um, connoisseur, so I may not uh, describe this in general terms, but you charge the soil um, beneath your geomembrane liner from the outside here, and the soil cover on top is isolated. You can see here there's a separation uh, between the, the geomembrane, between the cover soil and the subgrade soil. And you take your equipment across the cover soil in a grid, and you check uh, for electrical current coming from the charged subgrade soil through a defect in the geomembrane. And when you find current or an anomaly that shows up, you excavate and you find, uh, hopefully find uh, your defect and then you repair it. So it's a good check um, following soil cover installation. Here's an example of a defect that was found um, from a electrical leak detection test. And it's obviously an excavator tooth striking the liner. And you may say, and I would have said this too, is why would the excavator bucket be so close to the liner, especially one with teeth on it? Well, it just goes to from the design to the construction world. This was a landfill cell, um, and they were putting the sand drainage layer for the legit collection system on top of the geomembrane, which had a geotextile on top of it. And in this case, you know, they did exactly like we thought they would. They built out large, thick roads of sand so they could haul in the sand material and spread it from these thick roads with a low ground pressure dozer. What we had not considered was um, the need for them to excavate some of the sand back out. And this was because, you know, the, the installation of the sand cover had to start before all the leachate pipes were in. And when they put in the initial roads from the first corner, they had to go over some of these areas that leachate pipes were not in place yet because they were starting from the low end of the cell working up. So when they had got the leachate pipe to this place and the excavator needed to excavate the sand back out, um, obviously it would have been better to use a smooth bucket in this case. I'm not sure it would have um, prevented damaging the liner if it would have struck it as hard as this one appears to have. Um, but it just goes to show that you, electrical leak detection is so important because you don't or you can't always predict how these things are going to be installed. Um, there's different series and different schedule conflicts out there that some things have to happen before others. Um, so coming back and checking for these defects because um, mistakes are possible are important. Electrical leak detection is able to find uh, very small defects in your liner. 
Now, if you talk to an electrical leak detection company, they will tell you that they cannot guarantee with this method that they will find a certain sized hole or a certain type of defect. It's all gonna depend on your site conditions. Um, the saturation of the subgrade sole beneath your liner system, the saturation of the sole cover sole above your liner system. But on the top right photo here, we were able to find, or the uh, electrical leak detection company was able to find a few nice slices in our geomembrane liner. And this was actually under three feet of cover soil. That was pretty saturated, so it made the testing conditions pretty good. But you know, they, they are capable of finding this type of uh, defect. Another consideration for you to think about if you're specifying electrical leak detection is pipe penetrations. In the bottom photo here, we had a ductile iron pipe at the, at the end of our pond um, that was touching the soil beneath our geosynthetic liner system back here. And at the, as the electrical leak detection test started, the pipe was also touching the cover soil. This caused a lot of interference on the test. And initially, um, it was not recognized what the interference was coming from. Once they were able to find this pipe, or once they realized this pipe was there, it was obvious to them the problem, the interference problem was, and they were able to excavate the cover sole and isolate the pipe uh, from that cover sole and limit the amount of interference uh, still present uh, from this pipe. So as you're reviewing um, electrical leak detection submittals for plans on your projects, make sure that you, you think about these types of things and make sure that the installer or the um, company performing electrical leak detection is looking uh, is, is noticing these types of um, obstructions. And this is the last photo I have for um, electrical leak detection, but this is a liner defect that was found um, from the soil covered method using for electrical leak detection. This defect is huge. And if we had not found this underneath the cover sole, um, we had a geomembrane, we had a geotextile, and a foot of cover sole in this case. If we had not found this defect, the amount of leakage that would have went through this defect would have been tremendous and potentially um, could have severely impacted the success of this project. So this photo alone just speaks to the need to perform electrical leak detection. These contractors, everyone's human, nobody, you know, sometimes they can strike the liner and, and may not even realize it happened. So um, it's just, it seems like a no-brainer um, that our industry moves towards more of this testing. Um, and checking for any defects that could happen um, during these types of installations. I'm gonna conclude the presentation um, just mentioning that the geosynthetics and CCR applications is still growing and it's definitely evolving. Um, things are changing quickly. Um, the CCR rules have been in effect for four years now um, and we've been you know, adapting quickly to them, um, but things are gonna continue to change. Uh, we're gonna continue to see new products and new procedures um, so it's important uh, to recognize that and stay up to date on what's out there. We should learn from our past failures and modify our future designs. Don't continue to carry through things that, that ha haven't worked or aren't, aren't the current um, standard. Stay current with those best practices in construction. These facilities will be around for generations and we need them to last um, that long as well. Now I'm gonna turn it back to John Allen here um, to go through a few uh, informational slides, and then I think we'll have time for some questions. So before we end, I wanted to encourage everyone to visit the uh, FGI and the IGS North American websites. Our contact information for the individuals involved in today's talk are, are listed in front of us. So if we go to the next slide, Jason, we've uh, got an advertisement for 
our talk coming up in early August, Insane in the Geomembrane, the story behind coal combustion residual surface impoundment liners uh, by Harold Register and Andrew Bittner. Um, lastly, take, have a look at the FGI website. There's a, a ton of uh, help with regard to being able to uh, use fabricated membranes. Um, and there's a lot of, of webinar content when I was looking at it the other day. Um, before we jump into the questions, I want to say thank, thank you, Jason. Um, there have been a number of webinars talking about a lot of individual topics um, that you presented today, but you're the first one that I've seen from a design professional where you're pulling it all together and everything you need to consider. And I, I, I believe that your talk today is a great summary and you are supported by a number of industry experts out there on everything that you talked about today in various webinars that the audience can find out there. So Thanks, moving John. into questions. Our first one is, is in your uh, leachate compatibility testing work, did you maintain a constant concentration throughout the tests? Concentration of the influent? Yes. Yeah, with the, uh, yes, I believe the answer would be yes to that. Uh, we had plenty of influent or plenty of leachate uh, for the testing, so uh, it was able to be continually inundated with new leachate. All right. Um, the, a couple of the points he touched on, one was ASTM. Um, I had the privilege of being at ASTM in Denver a couple weeks ago. And to reinforce some of Jason's points, uh, there was a workshop within uh, D3504 specifically related to making improvements on the compatibility testing of GCLs in, uh, with non-compatible fluids. Uh, the workshop highlighted uh, technical difficulties amongst the laboratories. Jason stressed that you need to call your lab and interact with them. Um, not all labs are created equal. There's a lot of uh, uh, default, um, cheapest way to do things uh, um, offerings that it, unless the laboratory is engaged, you don't get exactly what you need. The same goes for that permeability testing. And uh, this is, I guess, more of an update than a question to you, Jason, but there was a lot stressed from the academic level um, that's been written about in the journal papers to move that down into the commercial laboratories and into the general practice. So there should be more to come on that. Um, I have another question here, uh, changing subjects. Uh, can, can you elaborate a little bit more on the, on the field failure that you presented, the, the, the big tear in the membrane? I think it was the membrane. Sure. Yeah, this one and the causes of it. Um, we the uh, we worked on the design on this project, and we had a small part in the construction as the owner's rep. Um, but there was a, a strong contingent of CQA on this project. So, and to my knowledge, nobody's exactly sure um, why this tear happened. We suspect possibly a dozer blade had caught it. Um, I'm not aware if there was a, a defect found in the geotextile or if this type of tear happened um, before that was installed. Um, but we're not exactly sure how it happened, but we're sure glad we found it. Um, 
when I look at that, uh, I see it almost looks like a tensile failure, like it's been stressed in in one direction to snap it apart. And I know there's some experts on the phone or on the call that are uh, may be able to shed some insight into that type of failure, but uh, I found that interesting. And then the and the condition of the subgrade underneath it as well. Yeah, like obviously this. was able to see a lot of rain after the. Uh, yeah, that's very possible as well. Um, unfortunately, you know, we were able to, to find it and get it fixed up. So, and look for other cases of it on the project, which we never saw anything like this again. So, okay. Um, I've got another uh, question that just came in. It's referring back to ASTM methods and initial specification of. Uh, uh, using the term, uh, the MARV term, minimum average uh, roll value, the, and the, they're asking um, uh, basically that people should update their, their standard specifications each and every time because there are updates that, that MARV is not really associated with GCL testing in terms of uh, Unless it's the the membranes or the the tensile, and then it can be a MARV or a minimum. Um, very different ter terminologies and how you track and pay attention to that. This is what the question is saying. Okay. And with that, let me uh, click through these questions one last time. Ah, for long three to one. Uh, Side slopes, is it acceptable to have a butt seam and a geomembrane? Uh, I would, I think, let's see what I can recall on this. So I know a lot of specifications will say um, no butt seam within a certain distance at the toe of the slope and also from that point out a little ways um, for a certain length. I'm sure there, the, I think you have, Obviously, the most stress on the liner, I think, or you know, would be at the top of the slope and at the bottom. Um, so I, I know they're installed that way. Uh, they, sometimes you have a butt seam along the slope. Um, so I would say, in some cases, I think they're, they're they'd be okay. Uh, generally, in the membrane too, they'll uh, put it in at a at a forty-five angle as opposed to a. Uh, uh, perpendicular to the slope yes that's a great point okay i believe that's our last question jason so once again thank you so much for uh taking the time to put this webinar together um everybody who's still on please know that uh both fgi igs um cannot do this without you i would highly encourage you to go and uh, participate in these in these bodies um, and become members uh, to, to keep the free content coming out uh, from from both from both groups. Also, uh, related to ASTM, the designers who are on the phone, ASTM needs your input to keep driving all the topics that Jason talked about forward to make, ensure that you have good uh, proven methods to work with that uh, can help validate your assumptions and design. And with that, we will conclude for the day. Thank you.